I'd ask that you take your Bibles up with me and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, as we take up our study again of the book of Matthew, turning now to verse 14, a a question of fasting very much connected with the, the prior account. And so as Jesus calls Matthew, as Matthew has this feast, as he calls his friends, as he calls these sinners, now comes the questions of the Pharisees. Why do you eat with them? And so now we come here to this next bit with another set of questions. Why are you eating? Why don't you fast? And so needing within all of it to recognize what Jesus is revealing about himself and how, are we, and how we are then to bow and submit before him. So let's hear these words. Matthew chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 14. We pay special attention to the reading of God's word because it is the best thing he has given us today. It is his holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." The grass withers and the flower does fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Father, as we humble ourselves before your word, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit would be pleasing to you, that you would feed us by your word, and that you would lead us to Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in Ecclesiastes 3.1, it says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so even in our text this morning, we see that there is a time for feasting, and there is a time for fasting. There is a time for us to fast. Perhaps that has been a part of your examination in this past week. Even as we've considered our need for salvation, the need to examine our hearts, to draw near unto the Lord in the joy of our salvation. Today, as we see a table set before us, today is a time for feasting, to rejoice in the word, to rejoice in the Lord and the supper, that sacrament that is given to us. There's a time for both. Even as those found not having a righteousness of our own, those found holy and only in Jesus Christ. And so we understand this in the already not yet that we live in of looking ahead to Jesus' return and yet still being here, still seeking to follow him in every way. But these things were not understood during Jesus' life. They were understood by him, but not by those around him. And it led then to much consternation concerning what Jesus gave himself to and what he didn't, who he hung out with and who he didn't, what he said and what he didn't. The Pharisees consistently questioned everything about Jesus. They questioned his teaching, his claims, his actions. In Matthew 9, they questioned Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? 
the narrative advances. Here John's disciples ask, why are your disciples eating? Why are they not fasting like we do? But they're not just questions about eating and drinking. They're not just questions about fasting or feasting. They're questions I try to get at the life of, or what a life of seeking to be holy is to look like. What does it mean to be one seeking to be a follower of God? What does that look like? What is that lived like? What is the standard of holiness, of ethic that we are called to, that we must be given to? What must we do? What must we not do? We love those lines. We love those checkboxes. But what does living for Jesus need to be and look like? And maybe even reading this and and in your devotions even this week, as you've meditated on the word of the Lord, you stop and you ask these same kind of questions. God, what, what would you have for me to do? What is my life supposed to look like? And they're not bad questions provided we seek their answer in humble submission to the person and presence of Christ. Because he's come to call sinners to repentance. He's called them to faith. He calls them to live lives dependent upon the very grace that he provides. He is there calling them to himself. The Messiah is in their midst. And so it wasn't a time for fasting and mourning but for feasting and fellowship. And so there's a time for all of it, but we need to recognize the times for them both. And so as we come before him, knowing times of both fasting and feasting, how are we as a body, how are we as individuals to follow after him? And more, what are we to believe about him and his promises? And so we see today that the bridegroom Jesus calls his disciples to times of fasting and feasting in the reality of his presence and work. The bridegroom Jesus calls his disciples to times of fasting and feasting in the reality of his presence and work. And so his disciples seeking to understand his call to follow and more this day feast in him, we consider first questions of practice and presence. And we have to think about these things first because they get at what is the heart and what is the value of discipleship, of what it is to follow after anyone. And so for us, how do we follow the Lord? How do we follow Jesus? What practices do we need to give ourselves to? How are we going to actively follow him? And so in that understanding, we can understand why the Pharisees and and now John's disciples are seeking clarity. Again, the Pharisees want to know, why would you eat with sinners? And he tells them, because I've come to seek and save them. These are the people that I need to be among. But now additional questions are asked. Look again at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we in the Pharisees fast? Which that and is always problematic as we see in the scriptures. We don't necessarily want to link ourselves to the Pharisees. But it's a question of practice. But your disciples do not fast. And so today we don't talk very much about it. But fasting was a big part of Jewish discipleship. 
that converts to Judaism would come before that call to fasting almost immediately because it set them apart from the world. In the Scriptures, only the fast of the Day of Atonement was required, yet many Jews fasted two times a week, and some more than that in times of hardship or struggle. But what was fasting supposed to be about? You see, that's the thing of which any practice that we take up as believers has to be understood by way of his word. Why do we do the things that we do? Fasting was intended to be about faithfulness, about approaching God in a manner of humility, of seeking his help and grace. But but for some, the practice was abused. It was made into a show of self-righteousness and the desire to be better than others. Fasting was looked at as a way to receive special favor from God. And Jesus chastises this view in Luke 18. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here at I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. And Jesus says what? That man doesn't go home justified. It wasn't about the stuff. It's not just about checking off the box. No, Jesus is making clear a sinful tendency. One not just limited to the practice of fasting, but I would offer before you today every spiritual discipline. Everything that we do with the best of intentions at the front end. I want to be closer to the Lord. I want to live in relationship to Him. But when we make that discipline something that it's not, when it's no longer about a relationship with the Lord, but instead ways we judge others as being less holy or religious or favored, we have an issue. There's a problem. This is something then that we ought not to do wrongly. And so it's why Jesus offered this correction that we looked at back in Matthew 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. They get what they want. They get that notice. They get that attention. That's their only reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in, your, in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, fasting and any number of those other spiritual disciplines were never meant to be about showmanship, but about a right relationship. And that's what Jesus is advancing here. And if the Pharisees and now Jesus' disciples understood who was before them and what Jesus' disciples were being given to, they wouldn't ask this kind of question. So instead, Jesus asked them a question. Look again at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus defends his disciples as any teacher would. But think about it. Having just been a part of one, can you mourn at a wedding? Now, maybe if you're not all about the couple, maybe. But outside of that, no. A wedding is a time of rejoicing. 
A wedding is celebration. You can't fast when the groom and bride are together. It is clearly a moment not for grief, but for celebration. You don't fast when you're called to feast. But that's not because of the nature or necessity of fasting or feasting, but because of the presence of the groom. Because of the presence of the bridegroom. And this is the point that Jesus is emphasizing. This is the point that we have to be brought to again as we are gathered for worship and live before the presence of God. Do we understand his place in our midst? The presence of the groom should bring joy. Jesus' presence should bring joy. The Messiah is with them. The bridegroom is here. Jesus is that groom. The church is that bride. And so what Jesus, even in this question, is imploring them to is an understanding that they are so, so worried about fasting and not concerned enough with relationship and joy because they don't understand or believe the truth. They don't believe him. The Pharisees didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. The disciples of John here are still trying to figure it out. So Jesus makes clear not only that the presence of the groom is there, but that it's to be celebrated. That it is joyous. Mourning is an activity of a funeral, not a wedding. So fasting wasn't going to be a part of active following Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry. And you're like, well, pastor, Jesus fasted in the wilderness. Right. Obedient for us. Living that life of obedience for us. But if you listen to the rest of the text, you see he isn't abolishing fasting. It's something for us to hear too. For even now, he says what? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast. Not they might, not if you think it's helpful, not if you can do, they will. But here, when we read this verse, we run to that word fast. But we haven't remembered what Jesus is saying here. Look again in it. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. You see, that term is an important one because Jesus knows what his ministry is going to end in. He's going to be taken. He's going to be taken away to his death. He's going to be crucified. His body is going to be given. His blood is going to be shed unto complete forgiveness of the sin of all of his people. And so when he is taken, there will be time for fasting and sorrow. In fact, we pause, be it on Good Friday or any time we gather for the Lord's Supper. We remember that sacrifice. We remember the price that needed to be offered for our sins. Yet on the Lord's day, we also remember that he was taken up into heaven. There's sadness in parting, and yet there's work to be done as we wait for him. Which is why we fast. The disciples would fast in such an acknowledgement. And we fast now, yes, sorrowing over sin that breaks fellowship, but also desiring to find our fullest satisfaction in him. Father, there is nothing in this world 
Nothing that I have, nothing that I eat, nothing that I can't give up that compares with you. That we would desire to find our fullest satisfaction in him, to find our deepest longings fulfilled in him. And so as we await his coming again as his disciples, as his followers, the fast that we're called to every Lord's Day is to rest from our evil ways and let the Lord work in us through his Spirit. It's the wonder of the practice of Sabbath. And so if we fast and when we fast, we must never think more highly of ourselves. Don't ever use it to club somebody else, but rather think all the more highly of the Lord and his presence among us by his Spirit. As those who long to live forevermore in the glorious presence of our God in the new heavens and new earth. And so in understanding those questions of practice and presence, we come to understand more of who Jesus is and who he's revealing himself to be and what he's come to accomplish. And we must believe that. Even as second, we consider his directions of purpose and preservation. Because at this point in the text, perhaps you're starting to feel some of the dissonance. There's that incompatible quality between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the Pharisees. And that incompatibility comes because of the expectation of the Pharisees and the Jews. They expect the Messiah to come and interact following their structures, their purposes, the ways they've sought to know and follow the Lord. It's clearly not Jesus' way. But he says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's saying the main thing is still going to be the main thing. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And so the activities and ways of their discipleship, their structures, and their casuistry were not the most important thing. Jesus is. The shadows of those things are not the most important things. The reality is, for in Christ, all things are new. All things are changed. And so they shouldn't have thought, well, Jesus is going to come in and do an add-on. He's going to do a renovation. No. No, you simply can't add Jesus to what you're already doing. That's true for the unbeliever. That's true for those who have been religious in other ways. What can be had can be had only in him and in him alone. You can't force Jesus, his calls and commands, into any other box. In any other thought. You can't try to bring him into any other religion. No, all things are brought under his rule, his authority, every thought taken captive for his glory. It is about His way. His word, the only standard of our doctrine in life. And so Jesus is already in these ways saying, I'm making all things new. Even as He says in the supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's not a denial of the old, but it's the fulfillment. And so to this end, Jesus uses a couple of illustrations to enforce the truth for his disciples. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. No one does this. 
I know we're not all the sowers that we used to be, but here's plain truth. This is the tear that's going to happen. Jesus makes plain. It's not only undesirable, but it would make the situation worse. One commentator writes, quote, Jesus isn't trying to patch up Judaism, end quote. It's not why he came to fix an old thing. He has come to do and bring a new thing, to grant us better clothes, the robes of his righteousness. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. No one would do this. Look what happens when you try. For if you do this, you destroy the sweet wine and the vessel you seek to keep it in. You destroy the sweet truth of grace that Christ has brought and you destroy yourself. Because you can't fit those two things together. Those are those Legos and those Duplos that never get together no matter how much you want to try to smash them together. It doesn't work. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Here is the new wine of the kingdom that is found in my blood. Here is the newness of life that I work in you. And those are the things that come together, that in the maturation of that sweetness of what God has given, there is great joy. There's something to celebrate by way of his gift. And please notice the point Jesus emphasizes in that last word. If you seek to bring Jesus into what you already are and are doing, you try to bring him into your sinful life, into that old way, and keep on sinning and keep on sinning, no. You destroy his truth and you destroy yourself. He provides you something better. He gives you a better way. He is that new and living away. He alone must be followed and obeyed, otherwise there will inevitably be loss and disaster. He desires not to preserve a way of self-righteousness, but a way of following known through the promises of the Old Testament and now into the promise of the gospel. That way is a way of newness of life found only in relationship to him and dependence upon him, and that should be our profoundest joy. That should be the sweetness that comes out of us at every moment. That he has made a new and living way for us in himself that we might be brought to fullness of joy and later to pleasures found at his right hand forever. And so in that way, these are days of celebration and great joy which will be for all people. Because Jesus is saying here what? I am not seeking to destroy the old, but to fulfill it. To leave no room for legalism or any form of self-righteousness, but also not making a way to dismiss his call to lives of holiness and discipleship in any form of antinomianism. So bringing that all forward to today, we know our place here in his presence, in worship and around his table. And this I say to you, brothers and sisters found in Christ, is now not the time for fasting, but for feasting. We know what our bridegroom has provided us. So take and eat. Take and drink. Don't come this morning thinking, I am unworthy of coming. 
that I have sinned so much that there is no way that this Jesus has given himself for me. Riddled continually in the guilt that you hold, place it at the foot of the cross and take and eat and drink. Because the Lord is good. Because there is something to feast in, and it is Christ. This is my body given you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a moment to feast in Christ, to rejoice, to be preserved in Him as we seek to persevere in His promises, even as we long for that day of the wedding supper of the Lamb. He has brought salvation. That is something to celebrate. But to do that in feasting and fasting and following, we must believe. That is his call to you today. To believe that he is that groom, that he is present now, that he has done all things for your salvation, and that he's coming again. So watch, for you know neither the day or hour. Watch. For the kingdom of God is at hand, and the marriage feast will soon begin. Will he find us ready? And so let this reality of his presence and work then and now inform all of your feasting and fasting, all of your life of devotion and discipleship, so that in all of our times of following him together, we might be found fully in the grace and salvation of the Lord. Amen.